This is Rebecca Lowe, or Rebecca Lua, if you listen to Suboptimal Radio, and you are listening to Men in Blazers on the NBC Sports Network. It's unbelievable! From the Men in Blazers World Headquarters, this is the Men in Blazers podcast, with me, Rog, and a special guest, the poetic Arlo White. But before we immerse ourselves... In all of that football, I want to say that we pod in shock, in mourning, at news of Chape Quentz, the small yet mighty Brazilian team whose plane crashed while flying to play their first Copa Sudamerica finals match in Medellin. The team had been hailed as Brazilian Leicester, rising from the fourth tier of Brazilian football since 2009, they're in the middle of a fairy tale season before the tragedy struck and that fairy tale turned into a nightmare. 75 people are reported to have gone down with the plane. As one of the Argentinian newspapers wrote alongside the last known photo of the team boarding their flight, and it has been so haunting all day looking at images of the team in times of joy, knowing exactly what has befallen them. They wrote, all together, they went to play the game of their lives. Long-time Brazilian GFOP, at Sweet Bobby, wrote to say that the pain of the Brazilian nation is accentuated because Chape Quentz was a delightful team of journeymen whose players have represented most, if not all, clubs at some point. So all fans are united in mourning today, we wish all of our Brazilian listeners, all South American football fans, our love, thoughts, condolences, mois pesames, mois sentimentos. Football, like life, it can bring you such joy and such pain. God, this is all just a reminder, a horrible Reminder before we descend into the trivialities, the irrelevancies, the Mourinhoisms, to remind of what's truly important in life, making every moment matter, listeners, taking nothing for granted. As Philip Larkin once wrote, and that we have at the bottom of every newsletter we release, we should be careful of each other, we should be kind while there is still time. No Davo today. He's in London with his family, dealing with his own loss. Again, thanks to all of you for your messages of condolence and support. You are beautiful, beautiful people, and they mean the world to my friend in life and in pod. And so we go alone to the football. Oh, the sound of a solo Guinness opening. It's the sound of one of life's simplest, most beautiful pleasures to life and to football. Speaking of which, after a weekend in which the top four all emerge victorious, the crap goals floweth like Malbec at the Bennett Thanksgiving table. And Bob Bradley became the first American manager to ever win a Premier League game. History. We felt compelled to conscript a man who experienced it up so close 
He could have caught the water bottle Jose Mourinho kicked had he wanted to. Phonius Live from Middle England, Derbyshire, somewhere near the corridor of uncertainty to you, dear listeners. The one and only Mr. Ollie White. Roger, we've moved no longer in the corridor of uncertainty. We've moved to the avenue of anxiety. (laughs) (laughs) Same county. Where is the avenue of anxiety, Ollie? The avenue of anxiety is on the Derbyshire and Leicestershire border. Um, Beautiful part of the world. Lovely, crisp, sunny winter's day today. So the darkness and the blackness has been expelled for the time being. But I'm sure it's not far away, Rog. You know the British winter. Yep, you've got your five minutes of light, Arlo. Enjoy it while it can, you and the rest of your nation of mole men. Was there a hint of Thanksgiving in the White Household? I want to know, is this a tradition? that you took back in your loving arms from your American sojourn like the pilgrims in reverse. <laughs> to a degree, Roger, it was, yes. Um, uh, I always keep a close eye on, on Thanksgiving. But, but in England, I mean, we are aware of it, obviously, but it was just like any other Black Friday Eve, really, uh, last, last Thursday. I love it when Arlo White says Black Friday with an incredible twinkle in your voice. One senses we're about to see a new wave of pocket squares unleashed in gantries across the Premier League. I just spent the whole day making sure that my family were appropriately thankful for the birth in a manger somewhere outside of Hershey, Pennsylvania. Talking about being thankful, Arlie, you've got a lot to be grateful for. One of our listeners at Dan Merker wants to know, Leicester City, the Cubs, oh so possibly, as we will discuss, the Seattle Sounders, 2016. Mm. It's been a great year for Arlie White and pretty well crap for everyone else. How do, you, how do you explain this to yourself, Ollie? Uh, with great difficulty. I honestly think I'm um, one of the hosts in, uh, in, a, in a, my own East Midlands version of Westworld uh, <laughs> sometimes. I mean, it, it is incredible. In a sporting sense, it could not have been any more glorious than it has been. Yeah, but it pretty well sums up the difference between you and me. You're a Cubs fan. I chose to be a White Sox fan. Two very oh. different approaches to life. Last question before we delve into the football from at Kimashadu, can Arlo fit in saying the word charcuterie on air? We'd love to hear that voice say that word. Charcuterie, Arlo, all yours. Charcuterie, okay, I'll see what I can do. I'm not normally one for, for squeezing in words. Uh, I have friends that request it all the time, but let's see if we can uh, maybe have a little play with this one in, in games to come, particularly over the Christmas period. Just give it one more go, Arlo. I'm going to cede the floor to you for the word charcuterie. Charcuterie. Ah, a thousand cell phone ringtones have just been minted of that dulcet poetic rendition of the word. To the football, together, Arlo. Chelsea, two. Spurs, ah, Spurs. Beautiful Spurs, one. Antonio Conte's men overcome an 11th minute Christian Eriksen. Won the strike to win their seventh on the spin and keep Spurs zero since 1862 at Stamford Bridge in the Premier League. Chelsea stay a point clear at the top. Spurs, now defeated, languish in fifth. You were there for the Battle of the Bridge too. Last season's 12 yellow card eye-gouging fest. Very different to this. A test that was really more mental than physical. Fascinating matchup going in. Chelsea hadn't lost to Spurs at the Bridge for 26 years. So long ago, oligarchs hadn't even been invented yet. And Spurs... Yeah, I mean, unbeaten, but in name only. They peppered in six draws, uh, a mix that mix of five wins. 
and the debacle of a Champions League campaign still lingered going into the game. First things first, most importantly, Arlo, how mm. is the Stamford Bridge gantry? Describe. Oh, it's one of the good ones, Rog. It's high up at the back of the stand, um, but its proximity to coffee-making facilities and the all-important bathroom is the best in the league because sometimes you do have to battle through the crowd and go if you need to uh, to relieve yourself at half-time with the fans. It's quite um, awkward sometimes when you've got a face full of makeup. Uh, there can be an unforgiving <laughs> lot in the bathrooms of the Premier League uh, in that scenario. Uh, you've got your flamboyant pocket square, your face full of makeup. It doesn't go down particularly well. But uh, no, so that's good. Um, it's a, a terrific view. Uh, the atmosphere in there is excellent. We often have Americans that are on, on visits, you know, Chelsea fans from the States, seated close to us, bizarrely. So we often get called across to to have a little bit of a chat and a photo. Uh, but it's one of the better gantries in the Premier League. Oh, I always imagined it as an eerie place that dissidents have been known to have been defenestrated from <laughs> in seasons past. But what a game. I mean, from the off, Chelsea... Yeah really couldn't get any purchase for that first half hour. We've seen that no. midfield overrun all comers. I mean, here is Wanyama, Dembele, smothering Son and Delhi charging, given a directness that's been missing for weeks from Spurs play. Chelsea couldn't keep the ball on the end of their boots. No surprise when Christian Eriksen, who to me always looks like that village cowherd apprentice who's been ripped straight from the pastures, opened the scoring. Yeah, and he hadn't scored in 18 games, Rog, had he either. So he was one of the players that I think one or two Spurs fans and Maurizio Pochettino were looking at as someone who hadn't pulled his weight so far this year and they needed better from. Pochettino was was repeatedly saying that he needs more purpose in front of goal. He needs to want to score goals. But there he was, lovely left-footed slicing effort that went past uh, Courtois. And, and it was it was the, the cap, really, for Spurs for a great start to the game. They had the intensity. The last time I saw that level of intensity from them was their, their victory over Manchester City. They high-pressed. There was full of energy. Chelsea couldn't get out of their their own penalty area at times, leave alone their own half. Yeah, I mean, I always believe you see the true measure of a team when they fall behind. And if that's true, what Chelsea produced is really, to me, it's truly mm. daunting because it was a performance yeah. of sheer resilience. They took a pistol whipping for 35 minutes. I mean, that Spurs midfield almost punched itself out a little with its zealous pressing game. And yeah. when you wondered what kind of a Chelsea are we watching, they showed us with total belief to force themselves back into the game. I mean, in effect to me, this was a game in which one team asked the other, how much pain can you endure mentally? And I believe mm. in asking the question, Chelsea never really doubted their victory because Conte has got this Chelsea team firmed up like a ripple muscle. I mean, the last 10 minutes of the first half, Chelsea forced themselves back into the game. They started to break Spurs press, some balls over the top to spring Costa, Azard, Matic hit a diagonal to Pedro. I mean, did, did you feel as you were sitting there that Chelsea were going to force their way back into this game? Without a doubt. I think I said to Graham that I just sensed there was more space for them. They, they grew in belief, Chelsea. They were connecting passes. They were, they were, they were camping themselves in, in the Spurs half. And it felt like only a matter of time before Pedro equalised. And, you know, he, he did it beautifully with that curling effort into the, into the bottom corner of uh, Lloris' goal. There's two things that I love about that goal. I love that Pedro knew exactly what he was going to do with the ball before he'd even controlled it. Quick flick to get it out of his feet, then that arrowed strike. The strike of a player whose confidence has been totally renewed. And the other thing I adored, probably adored even more than the strike, was that the reaction of Antonio Conte just punched 
Pedro mm. in the shoulder blades with full <laughs> might as he ran past in celebration. Uh, and Pedro, a symbol of that, just a change in this season's Chelsea compared to last season. They're no longer just a Costa and Azar double at living and dying by the player those two. They got Pedro, they got Victor Moses. I mean, they can also they can hurt opponents in so many different ways. Pedro still discarding the patina of a bus that cloaked him last season. Now being involved in more Premier League goals at home, three goals, five assists than any other player this season. I love that he's found the net three times from just four shots on target. But in the second half, what were you watching? Were you watching the game or were you watching Antonio Conte's demeanour on the <laughs> sideline? Because, I mean, the cameras just kept showing him and he's... He's either talking during away to Pochettino or he's maniacally orchestrating every single detail that is his, his team or he wants them to unfurl on the field. Where do your mm. eyes go? Often in Premier League games, Rog, I do find myself looking at the technical areas because, you know, this is the cult of the manager this season, isn't it? With all the big names that are in the league, um, you have to be very careful that you don't miss anything on the field, of course, um, which is difficult. But you, particularly with, with Stamford Bridge and with Antonio Conte, his perpetual motion, you can tell how into every game he is. And the Chelsea fans are loving him and the squad are clearly adoring him. It's like Jim Harbaugh, but with a better hair transplant. Chelsea responded to his antics because what I saw, they outran a Spurs team that's born to run. That second goal, mm. Pedro to Costa, Spurs defence without Aldevelde, Veldevelde, Veldevelde, like the Shields in Star Trek when they're down to 60%. And Barcelona's Victor Moses, 60-yard run, wide open, because his run was so late and Diego Costa had charged so deep and Vimmer had covered over, leaving... Moses totally open to push the ball home off a flailing Vertonghen. Game over. Spurs desperately tried to resummon their flex biceps. They just didn't have any real width or any alternatives, to be honest, to Harry Kane. Unbeaten no more, which might not be a bad thing, Arlo. I mean, trying to defend an unbeaten run can become a distracting alternative to actually, you know, winning games. But what do you make of this Spurs team so far? You mentioned the October the 2nd win against Manchester City, a false dawn. But where are they in terms of the challenges that we've seen this season? I'm confused by them, Rog. I've got to be honest, because I've, against Manchester City, they were so good. And it, it felt a little false, the unbeaten record. You know, won six, drawn six. It's incredibly difficult to avoid defeat for that long in the Premier League. So you have to give kudos and credit to them for it. But you have this run in the Premier League and then you look elsewhere. They've won one in nine in all competitions and gone out of the Champions League with a bit, bit of a whimper. That, that top four spot last season was so hard-earned. To go out in the manner that they did was very disappointing. I thought they recruited well in the off-season. I still think they're an excellent side. They're the youngest starting eleven in the, in the Premier League. But this is, this is a tipping point now that could go either way, really, because that was a big defeat for them at, at, at Chelsea. You know, I think they're going to make it, give it a real good go for top four, but I question whether they can go all the way and really test for the title or challenge for the title this season. You know, to me, the greatest testament is that Spurs fans are so angry at the state of their title challenge. I love that they now expect a title challenge. Shows how the, <clears throat> the stakes have changed under Pochettino. I mean, the squad to me seems thinner than those of the teams that are above them. But when you look at the first 13 games of last season, won six, drawn six, lost one, 13-plus goal difference in fifth position. And then you realise this season, first 13 games, won six, drawn six, lost one, goal difference nine, but position still fifth. You know, I would take heart 
if I was a Spurs fan. The difference being, I guess, compared to last season, the competition's become even more intense and unforgiving. But for Chelsea, seven straight wins. Most of those games were against less than impressive opponents. Your Holes, your Middlesbroughs, your West Hams, your Evertons. This, to me, was a signature win. It begs the question... How has Conte turned Chelsea around so quickly in a way that, say, let's pull a name out of a hat, Jose Mourinho hasn't at Manchester United? Good question, Rog. I think it's down to the system. And then that change of system in the second half at the Emirates, 3-0 down, all over the place, getting thrashed, has changed everything. You know, Conte needs a, a a lot of credit. He allowed the old system to play itself out and then put in, you know, enforced his own philosophy on that football team and they have gone from strength to strength. Yeah, I mean, it's a a real respect to Chelsea that the loss of such a massive player as Matt Miazga has barely been a speed bump. (laughs) And also, when you look at this clash this weekend, Conte, Chelsea against Pep Guardiola's Manchester City, it's the latter manager you imagine is going to be scheming this week to work out how to break that three-man bat line. I mean, Pep watches game film of his opponent's last six games and he has highlights broken down by his analysts over and over until what he calls his eureka moment appears of how to mm. smite his nemeses. What will he see? What will he do? I've got a feeling he may be able to do something with pulling David Luiz out of position, perhaps by having Yaya eat him. But what's fascinating is you imagine it's Pep who's working harder this week than Conte trying to work out how to beat Pep, which says it all about how emphatic Chelsea have been over the past seven games. I agree with you. I just don't think that anyone works harder than Antonio Conte. Graham Lasso told me a story at the weekend. Uh, they were at Wembley watching one of the England recent England games in the international break. And Conte said to him, I, I know I live in London. It doesn't feel like I do. I haven't seen anything of the city. All I've done is gone to Cobham and back to my house. He works so incredibly hard and it's bearing fruit for him. So we know that Pep is an incredibly hard-working manager, but he won't outwork Conte this week. I think that might have been him just saying it's pretty dark in London. Just not enough light. <laughs> Poor bloke's not been able to see a thing. Liverpool 2, Sunderland nil. After a sluggish start, Jurgen Klopp's side extend their unbeaten streak to 11, thanks to a goal, a beautiful goal, from Divock Origi, and an ever-predictable penalty from the goal machine known as James Milner. While well, they won the game and stayed second, they did lose Felipe Coutinho to injury. Mighty resurgent Sunderland, Arlo, entering this game after two wins on the trot, came to Anfield and filled some classic Moyes ball. Everyone camped on the edge of their own box, including potencies Victor and Ichibi, leaving just Jermaine Defoe isolated to ponder the loneliness of the human condition. Up front, I loved Jurgen Klopp post-game when he said this was the most defensive team I ever saw in my life. But he said about his own team, there's no doubt Liverpool are ready to, quote, play against park buses. He called, actually, Sunderland, he kept calling them a parking bus team, which I loved. Liverpool, though, 77% possession. In truth, they seemed a bit below par in this game. 
Yeah, I'd agree with you. We watched this one in the uh, the mini winnie in the car park outside of uh, Stamford Bridge, Rudge, on Saturday. <laughs> um, they are my, or they were my tip for the title, Liverpool, and I'll stick with them. But Coutinho being missing until the new year is a massive blow to them. Um, thankfully, the injury perhaps isn't as, as bad as we first feared when he was stretched off in tears uh, at the weekend. And it's a massive shame, I think, for, for neutrals as well. I know it's very partisan, the Premier League, and you know people often dance on the graves of, of, of other teams' misfortune. But but he's a joy to watch and, and he's an asset to the Premier League and he entertains uh, us a week in, week out. Hopefully Liverpool will be able to ride uh, the storm of, of being without uh, their diminutive Brazilian. It's going to be tough, um, but I think they'll do OK. Out five to six weeks, Coutinho, which means he's going to be done for the holiday period. Honestly, could have been a lot worse and it has reinvigorated English tabloids drumbeat of Christian Pulisic to Liverpool. Hala Hershey. But then Jurgen Klopp threw on the pace, the power of Divock Origi. Anfield, odd in that second half. Quiet, ruminative, restless. I mean, that grinding crowbar in the machinery of last week's goalless draw against Southampton still fresh in all the memories. But then Jurgen Klopp did something absolutely fascinating. He knew there were 15 minutes to go. And he just... He just emitted what I can only refer to as a Baden-Württemberger roar. And he just flapped his arms around like he was a Teutonic warrior in the Hussite Wars. I guess that's what, how you say raise the roof in German. Because it turned Anfield into a seething cauldron. Two goals resulted. First, a fine curling angled strike by Origi. The second, a penalty in the dying embers. I am fascinated with the way which Klopp and Conte, they've really reinvented their teams by making a holy trinity of team, fans, manager, with themselves as that crucial bonding conductor in between. Mm. It's a theme developing here, Rog, isn't it? I wonder if Klopp and Conte are surprised that they have to whip the crowd up themselves. Going to clubs like Chelsea and and arguably world-famous Liverpool, world-famous Anfield with a new stand and a capacity of 54,000, whether, I'm, I think he might be slightly shocked that he has to turn around when the team need them at nil-nil, you know, against a team parking the bus when they're in the title race. They started the day in first place. I, 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 I bet he's a little bit surprised that he has to turn around and perform the act like you've just mentioned. Having met Klopp, I actually feel that he adores that role of being that kind of bonding fissure between his team and the fans. I actually think it's absolutely calculated and something that is absolutely critical in terms of his self-identity. Talking about self-identity, it was wonderful to see Stevie G back at Anfield week after he retired, after his warrior-like 18-year career, a -a one-and-a-half team man. Premier League probably will not see his like again. And I say that having watched him score 10 goals in derbies against Everton. I know that more than most. Arsenal 3, Bournemouth 1, an Alexis Sanchez brace, Theo Walcott header, repel the Jack Wilshireless cherries from the Emirates, keep Arsenal 4th. Arsene Wenger versus Eddie Howe, the old mystic master against the young pretender. I did love Wenger's comments before the game. He said, there are similarities between the two of us. We are both blonde. I mean, this was a great win for Arsenal in terms of the scoreline. But the kindest thing you could say about this performance is it was an economical outing. Three shots on target, three goals. The first granted by a moment of defensive self-destruction. Steve Cook's back pass setting up. Really, it was more an assist than a pass for setting up Alexis Sanchez. 
Bournemouth equalised, spurned a glut of chances, denied a blatant Nacho handball, um, and then went on to suffer at the hands of Theo Walcott. Oh, it was lovely to watch him with his puny English forehead. Only the <laughs> second time he's finished with his head over the 10 years career he's had in the Premier League, right after the birth of his second kid. And what did he call it, Arlo? Arlo. After you, methinks. Sign of just how big well, you're got... becoming in England. You got the naming rights. <laughs> I've got three theories here, Rog. Uh, because he's not the only one. And Mr and Mrs Walcott are not the only Premier League footballers to name their offspring Arlo. Also, Andy Carroll and Geoffrey Schlupp have sons called Arlo. And I just wonder, the theory number one, uh, Arlo Walcott was born around Thanksgiving. Perhaps uh, he was inspired by hearing Alice's Restaurant on a US radio station on his tuned-in radio <laughs> app around around the time of the birth of his, his second son. Uh, number two, they, they watched The Good Dinosaur recently. There's a big green Arlo in that. Or number three, they're watching illegal streams in the Walcott household of NBC Sports Premier League games. I, I, I'd say number three is highly unlikely. I'm slightly upset and worried by the, uh, the proliferation of the name Arlo. I'm used to being the outlier, the, the ginger with the odd name. Oh. So I don't know where this is all coming from. I would have thought that as a gunner, Theo Walcott would have called this kid Lee Dixon Walcott. No, <laughs> no, no sense of history, this young generation. But talking about history, Arsenal finally overcome their dreaded November curse. If they could only do something about the curse of March, April and May, they may be onto something. Burnley 1, Manchester City 2, proof the scoreline never vouches for the quality of a game. Pep Guardiola City win with two of the crappest goals in the history <laughs> of crap goals, trademark. Both from Sergio Aguero, the second featuring 348 failed clearances from the Clarets as Yaya Toure appeared to take a nap in the penalty area. Oh, the penalty area. City stay third. What a game. Never mind the quality, feel the width, a winning ugly performance for City, but a fine one, all the same to me, because to face up to a footballing banana skin like Burnley in their Middle-earth ecosystem after a Champions League week, I mean, to me, City did what they needed to do to extract three points, especially after going behind to some glorious Route 1 football. Couldn't agree more, Rog. To survive the early kickoff in the shadows of the Dave Fishwick stand and get three points after trailing... That's no mean feat. I was at Turf Moor two seasons ago. George Boyd scored the only goal of the game for City. And I watched afterwards as an ashen-faced Manuel Pellegrini gave his press conference. Uh, he could barely believe what had hit his side. And this is the difference between the City of two years ago and the City of today. I know those goals were ugly. They wouldn't have been out of place on any park on a Sunday morning around, around England. But what the players had to do to score those goals, to, to keep pounding away at the goal, you know, when it looked like there was a claret and blue wall in front of it, was to, was to show desire, determination. That ball is going to be squeezed over the line somehow. Um, and they did it. And that was a, a real, as you say, banana skin down at Burnley. They'd already taken care of Liverpool this season at home. They've given scares to other teams as well. So a huge three points for Manchester City and a real test of character. I marvel at Burnley's inability to make basic clearances. I mean, the total scraps finished off by master predator Kun Aguero, now scored 33 goals in his last 34 appearances. The second 
worth marvelling at a season's worth of Benny Hill physical comedy packed into 12 seconds of football. One Burnley defender, Ward, kicking his teammate, me, instead of the ball, taking them both out the game. Pep Guardiola later referred with a straight face to both of City's strikes as, quote, beautiful goals, which I absolutely <laughs> adored because Pep Guardiola is the same man who wants to find the perfect goal as one in which all 11 players, including the goalkeeper, touch the ball, but only once each. Those City goals, the exact opposite. What impresses me about City's title chase is that they're just one point behind Chelsea, neck and neck with Liverpool, having played eight more games already than both of them, a testament to their depth and the freedom Chelsea and Liverpool are savouring due to no European obligations. Chelsea now await. Manchester United won. Oh, Arlo, we've got to talk about this game. West Ham <laughs> United won. Referee John Moss sends poor victim Jose Mourinho to the stands for the second time in less than a month after the flailing Portuguese kicked a water bottle in protest of a 28-minute Paul Pogba yellow card. There was some football played along the way. Goals from Diafra Sacco and Zlatan left the game knotted at one. United suffer their worst start to the season in 26 years. This, to me, Arlo, another game, another draw for United that really felt like a galling defeat. Yeah, it did. Because in the week leading up to it, Rog, uh, Mourinho had stated he didn't feel his team were out of the title race. I gave the example of a few years ago with Chelsea where Manchester City were 10 points behind and by New Year's Day after the 5-3 defeats at uh, White Hart Lane, Manchester City were level. And that's when he went into that 1-0 mode in the second half of the season uh, and ground out the title. So his point being that the double-digit point deficits at this stage of the season are far from insurmountable. But... Four draws in a row at home in the league at Old Trafford for the first time since 1980. Is it two wins in 10 in the Premier League since winning their opening three games of the season? Um, it, it's, it's just not firing for them. From the start, Mourinho's selection, curious. I mean, United, they've finally shown signs of menace in that draw against Arsenal last weekend. So much pace, cunning, direct intent. Rampant in that 4-0 win against Feyenoord. Yet Mourinho... He picked a team that just seemed to undo much of what was good. Six changes, Darmian, Rojo back, Mkhitaryan out for Lingard. And West Ham, traditionally they come to Old Trafford seeing anything other than a 5 or 6 nil defeat as a victory. It was gobsmacking when they took the lead after 90 seconds. The goal caught everybody by surprise. An early free kick awarded wonderfully curled in by uh, Dimitri Payet in, in, that, in, that, in that trademark way. The heads went up. Ibrahimovic was marking Sacco. His, his, he chose to go with his legs, you know, his foot high up in the air and Sacco stole in behind, I think it was Cuyate, to nod the ball in the back of the net. And there was a stunned silence from, from a majority of, of Old Trafford, just so shocked that West Ham United, in the form that they've been in, managed to take the league. And then there was that sort of resignation to another afternoon of toil trying to get back into the game and, and eke out three points. But credit United, because they found a way back into that game, a phenomenal assist by Pogba. It was like a Dak Prescott bomb to Dez. Power, precision, timing. And then you realise, holy crap, that's his first assist of the season. I spoke to Davo and he, he said his first thought was, why don't United score goals like that all the bloody time? Which is a heartbreaking question for United fans to ponder, but before they could, it all unhinged slightly. For Mourinho, six months to the day since his appointment, not a happy anniversary after watching Pogba carded 
For simulation, he went all Ministry of Silly Walks on some innocent water bottles sent to the stands and is now braced for his third FA charge in six weeks. All of this, most definitely not the Manchester United way, a club that always tries to do things with class, if not for class's sake, then at least for the sponsors. Having said that, if Jurgen Klopp or Antonio Conte acted like that, we adore it, Arley. Yeah, yeah. And look, so Alex Ferguson was no stranger to, to confrontation during his time, his long tenure at, at Manchester United. You know, confrontation, intimidation, if you like, um, with, with match officials, with, with opposition managers. But, but Mourinho is so early into his stay that, that the, the charge sheet is, is starting to mount up. He, he has this sullen presence in the technical area, hands deep in his pockets, uh, muttering to himself. He, he doesn't look doesn't look happy he never really has though has he this has been his style since he came into into the you know the top flights of 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 European football with Porto he's always had that sullen presence in the technical area but now it's starting to spill over and we've seen him sent to the stands once before at Old Trafford here he was again I don't think his his frustration was justified on this on this occasion Graham and I analyzed the situation it Pogba didn't appear to have to um, get out of the way of a noble challenge to avoid any contact. He was nowhere near uh, the flailing kick from Noble. So, you know, went down and it, it appeared to be simulation and it appeared to be a correct decision. So it was an odd choice of a moment for Mourinho. Was he was he frustrated with, with the decision to offer a yellow card? Was he frustrated with Pogba for getting the yellow card? It, it meant he was out of the League Cup tie uh, against West Ham United, his fifth of the season. So just a strange situation, a beautiful strike of the water bottle, by the way. He went flying down the touchline in front of us, oh, about 20 yards in front of us. With the inside of his boot, it's beautiful. But I, yeah, I, I honestly worry what we're all watching and analysing in footballing terms. You know, We're all saying maybe someone who the game has passed by, they were actually seeing a man cracking mentally under just the, the crushing pressure of Premier League football management. And the pressure is so, so real at Manchester United. I mean, at Chelsea, he had a year to rebuild. He had that year where he'd say, young eggs, young horses, we, we're not ready next year, next year. But at United, this United, there's no patience for rebuilding. He had to come in, win from day one, spend the fortune, declare that he was going for the title, left him with no margin of error. And there's been error after error, imprecision after imprecision. I mean, as in this game, United dominated without scoring. I mean, Darren Randolph, unbelievable in goal. Another one who got away for the US men's national team. His father, Ed, a Miami-born basketball player, found fame in the non-lucrative world of Irish hoops. Lingard, Rashford, Zlatan, all miss real chances. Are United unlucky? Or is it not luck when you don't take your chances, Arlick? I don't think they are unlucky, Rog. I mean, and you look at uh, the statistics, they've scored 18 goals. They've had 164 chances. Now, I don't know who counts these chances and regards them as a chance, um, but they are the stats. And Chelsea have 11 more goals from the same chances. Look, Lee Grant of Stoke City played out of his skin. Tom Heaton was magnificent for Burnley. You've mentioned Darren Randolph. Some of the saves he pulled off were terrific. One from Rashford in the first half, another one where he tipped a, a shot onto the post before Lingard put the ball into the empty net, but from an offside position. So he was brilliant. But, 
as Graham Lasseau made the point during the, the commentary on Sunday from Old Trafford, those, those guys, the goalkeepers, are paid vast amounts of money to do just that, to keep the ball out of the net. It's what they do for a living. So if the ball's anywhere close to them, they have a better chance of doing that. If they're more clinical than Manchester United attackers, then they score goals. They stick it in the corner and there's no questions asked. The goalkeepers don't have a chance. So they have to take the blame. They have to shoulder some of the responsibility. It can't be abdicated by just saying that they're unlucky. They're clearly not an unlucky team. Unlucky teams don't fall 11 points behind the leaders at this stage of a season. And what I find fascinating, a little stat for you, Rog, that we uh, we looked up uh, going into the game. In his five full seasons as Manchester United manager, Jose Mourinho has finished where he was after 12 games of the season. And I don't think, whether it's luck or, or anything else, I don't think you can argue that Manchester United are about right in sixth place. Whether they finish there remains to be seen. But you look at the teams above them, the teams below them, I think right now, sixth place is about right oh, for this United side. Oh, that debate between free will and fate. It's fate when it comes to Mourinho as manager. He has 20 points from 13 games. Both Moyes and Van Gaal had more. To me, that doesn't mean anything. That's just optics. But what does mean something is that there's so many United players with question marks and fear emojis by their names. Martial, Mkhitaryan, Schneidlin, Memphis, Luke Shaw, Wayne Bloody Rooney. Even Marcus Rashford seems to be filled with self-doubt. The onset of puberty will do that to a lad. But a third of that squad filled with fear, filled with loathing, I mean, that is a festering locker room. And that, more than anything, is why both United and Jose Mourinho, separate but overlapping, they're unable to stop that freefall. Oh, Arlo, thank God you're here to make sense of the big one that everyone wants to know about. Leicester City 2, Middlesbrough 2. The Foxes escape with a draw after Slimani scores a penalty in the 94th minute. Arlo, you've got to tell us, is this Champions League round of 16s, Leicester? or two point clear of the relegation zones, Leicester City? And at what point does relegation become an absolute concern for you? It's, it's, it's here. Uh, the relegation issue has reared its head, and I think it's very real. Because the more that Leicester fans, players, the manager, say or assume that they're too good to go down, that this can't happen to us, we're the champions, etc. It'll come good, waiting for it to come good, the more trouble they are in. This league, Rog, is so unforgiving. The, the approach to, towards games, and I've tweeted about it, before Champions League games has been highly questionable. They've taken huge beatings that I don't feel they needed to take. Uh, if you're prioritising the Champions League, which Ranieri clearly has been, there, and, and, and you know you could argue either way about that. It's such a massive season for the club and perhaps a glorious one-off and how well they've done to, to win the group with a game to spare having conceded one goal. Um, but change the shape of the team so you're more solid and you give yourselves a chance. The Champions League has been fantastic. I've been to four out of the five games as a fan. It's been glorious. But it's provided a, a false sense of security because the group is so poor. The other issues they've got, central midfield, they signed Mendy. He went down after, after one game. They didn't get Adrian Souza from Sporting Lisbon. They may go back for him in January. It's an area that won them the title, and Conte has gone. He did the work of two players. Danny Drinkwater now suspended for two more games. So you've got a central midfield of Andy King and Daniel Amati. I mean, what, at Premier League level, as the champions? That worries me. The Africa Cup of Nations coming up in January, Rog. Mahrez gone, Slimani gone, Amati gone, Schlup gone. 
that could be a huge factor for them as well. Um, we'll wait and see what draw um, they they get in the in the last sixteen of the Champions League. If it's someone massive, I think Wes Morgan wanted Real Madrid or, or Juventus. That's fighting talk with the form that they're in. Um, but they do need to refocus and and and, and Ranieri to an extent needs to turn into bad cop again and get this bunch of players playing because at the moment there seems to be this this hangover from what happened last season, which was glorious. There's a malaise that's set in uh, on the field at the football club and it needs to be arrested before they're in real trouble after Christmas. Oh, the, the hangover from Jamie Vardy's party. The hangover of legends. It was fascinating to watch the Premier League champions booed at home. And you did. You made Negredo look like a real striker, which I think I never thought I'd live to see the day. But you'll always have the memories, Arlo. They'll never be able to prize them away from you. Southampton won. Oh, Everton, nil. Ronald Koeman returns to St. Mary's, falls to his former club, courtesy of a Chaz Austin goal, just 41 bloody seconds into the game. Oh, I don't know what to say about this, other than, for me, it was harder to watch than that video of Vladimir Putin giving Steven Seagal a passport. English journalists, I love this, already rushing to ask themselves, how good a manager is Ronald Koeman anyway? But is Everton, they don't only lack a plan B. Right now, they seem to lack a plan A. I've always joked that Everton are America's team. I mean, they were eerily reminiscent of the US men's national team against Costa Rica in this game, not mounting a shot on goal until a late attempt in the second half time added on by Gareth Barry. The game against Manchester United this weekend feels like it could end either team season with a loss. Watford nil, Stoke City won. A Herelio Gomez own goal keeps the Potters unbeaten in their last four, moves them into 11th. Hull City won, West Bromwich Albion won. An industrial football fan's dream <laughs> sees Michael Dawson rescue a point for the Tigers at the KCOM. It's not enough to lift 18th place Hull out of the relegation zone. Talking about the relegation zone, the beautiful side of the relegation zone. Swansea 5, Crystal Palace 4, Swansea City 5, Crystal Palace 4. An American victory, if there ever was one. Down 1-0, winning 3-1, losing 4-3. Bloody hell, winning 5-4. If Bob Bradley had any hair left on his head at the time of kickoff, it would have been long gone by the time of the final whistle. Less a football game. More a boxing match in which each side just throwing wild, uncalibrated haymakers hoping they land on it. Extraordinary. We were watching the tail end of it on the gantry at Stamford Bridge at the weekend. Um, and we were, <laughs> we were sort of dialing in on our talkback button, you know, asking questions about, about the Chelsea game and uh, you know, what time do you want us on the camera and all this sort of stuff. And all we got back was, it's 4-3, it's 4-3. And you can hear all the people in the gallery behind uh, our producer just going crazy. And then all of a sudden, 4-4 four, four and 5-4. And Graham and I were glued to the closing stages of that game. It was absolutely remarkable. Oh, I've got to say, I was with Bob Bradley two weeks ago filming a documentary with him. I don't like to take credit for great moments in American soccer history, are they? But I, I did tell Bob to stop with that defending <laughs> and just go all out attack. A week after almost getting his first win against Everton, his first real big boy win in his sixth game. I mean, our producer, when we did the Sirius radio show, a guy called Mike Corbett, fantastic engineer, great bloke who we bored the heck out of twice a week. 
And he spent his whole time during our show watching something that was called, it's awful. It's called Tramp Fights. It's on YouTube. And it's like a, a quite heinous English franchise in which a camera crew would somehow force homeless people to fight each other for money. I mean, it's the worst, cruelest, worst kind of human nature, a diabolical spectacle. I felt like I was watching tramp fights when I watched Swansea and Crystal Palace. I mean, it was just, Alan Pardew, a man who told the press before the game, our first priority is to protect the clean sheet. He called the game a period of madness that descended. I mean, there were more late exchanges in this game than an NBA playoff game. GFOP Lindsay Radnedge tweeted uh, that these are the kind of numbers that would get Jill Stein demanding a recount if it happened in America. It was almost unbelievable, right, Arlie? Incredible. Absolutely incredible. Um, Bob just needed a win. However it came, he needed a victory. And to see him on the sideline after his side had blown a 3-1 lead at home, and you think, this is it. We're going to cruise to three points. I can go and give a nice measured press conference and talk about the fact that we're back and the guys are doing things that I've, I've, I've wanted them to do. We've been great at training. And this is the result of that. To see his face in that technical area, 4-3 down, I just I wanted to turn the television off. I wanted them to, to switch the feed to something that was that was less scary than that, which was Leicester City against Middlesbrough. At the time. <laughs> and just to see him, to see him at five four. Although the defence has been woeful, at least the players are playing for Bob, and that hopefully will continue. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't just the number of goals in this game; it was the quality of them, or just the abject lack of quality. Each goal, it just seemed to learn something from the last to improve on its crappiness, uh, and just the damage that it did to the once fine art of Premier League defending. I watch a lot of boys under seven football are like, like thousands of our listeners, though, no doubt. My youngest, Oz, he believes that he's a world-class six-year-old player. The kind of football he plays week in, week out, utter crap, I don't mind saying it. No positions, just chasing the ball, eight or nine players, hacking away at it at any one time. That was what this game was like. It was just set piece after set piece. They were like penalties. Every free kick, just woeful, multilateral, defensive disarmament. I mean, there were blown off the line clearances. There were crap deflections. There were off both post goals. Three goals in nine minutes 30 for Crystal Palace to almost redeem something for poor dead man walking Alan Pardew. But you're right, at that full-time whistle of mercy, Bob Bradley mobbed by his assistants. Three points at last. But in truth, if anything, everything that's wrong with Swansea became more patently clear, even in victory. They can't defend, still very much guilty, Plus 10. Some great games lie ahead after the Spurs challenge of the weekend. They've got Sunderland, West Brom, Middlesbrough, West Ham. Points to be mine there. But what does this victory mean for Bob Bradley? It means an awful lot to, to Bob Bradley and to Swansea City. And, and as you know, coming from these shores originally, Rog, that there is suspicion uh, around an American being in charge of a Premier League football team, particularly one that perhaps has served time in some of the lesser leagues um, in Europe. So we're looking at Norway and you're looking at the French second division. It's, a, it's a, an appointment came, that came out of the blue. There is an acknowledgement in this country that the sport is, has gathered huge popularity in the United States. So probably people don't mock 
the Americans' love of soccer ball as much as they used to. But the CV or the resume for Bob wasn't quite there for the lay English football fan or Welsh football fan when it came to being appointed as a Premier League manager. Again, there was an element of farce to the game. 5-4, it was everything that was great and bad about the Premier League. Look, you give us a few more 5-4s throughout the season, Bob, we'll be more than happy with that because they're fantastic to watch, even if you can pick apart the defending. Um, But it just gets him off the mark and it gets him a bit of breathing space. And if he can get to those three or four fixtures, maybe get something against Spurs. They almost got something against Arsenal a few weeks ago but get to those winnable fixtures they will define Bob Bradley and Swansea City season they've been terrific to watch in recent years it's so sad to see them slip into the situation they're in but Bob's got the task of saving them and if he can get something substantial from those games then perhaps they're on the road to recovery it was breathless desperate it was a fantastic spectacle a terrible football I think a real worry for Swansea fans, for Bob Bradley, is that he had to dip into his quota for 2017 goals in one game. But at the final whistle, I experienced such a relief for Bob Bradley and his family. Bob is not going to be Les Reed, a punchline, as a manager who lost five, drew once in his seven-game managerial tenure, or Paul Jewell, who never won once in 24 matches with a hapless derby in 2007-2008. And if his Swansea can get seven or eight points out of the next 15 available, Bob could still yet get that knighthood for miracle work. To MLS. The Seattle Seattle Sounders are headed to MLS Cup. No Clint Dempsey, no Oberfemi Martins, no problem. The Sounders defeated Colorado 3-1 on aggregate, winning the second leg Sunday night in Colorado 1-0 behind a goal from who else? MLS Rookie of the Year, the artist formerly known as Stanford Messi, the one and only Jordan Morris, a man who neither flu nor injury could stop when it mattered most. This game was essentially like watching Jordan's bar mitzvah the day he became a man. Arlo, for those who might not know, we should say you carry a huge slice of Seattle with you into every gantry you climb up to. You spent time as their play-by-play commentator before your gig at NBC. I've got a lot to thank Adrian Hanauer and the Seattle Sounders for. I was their play-by-play man for 2010 and 11, two of the greatest years of my life. What an an amazing organisation, an amazing city, an incredible fan base. I always hold uh, a light for for the Seattle Sounders. And I saw them, Rog, in July in the US Open Cup mid-season, uh, at the LA Galaxy. Okay, look, it's the US Open Cup, so it wasn't the starting 11, but all didn't seem well. It seemed ripe for, for a shake-up, ripe for a change. And Ziggy Schmidt was so good to me, and he's such a great figure in, in US soccer, and particularly in Seattle, but it just felt like perhaps the time had come for a change. And then Brian Schmetzer takes over. Mr. Soccer in Seattle, he's played for the NASL team back in the day. He's always been there when the Sounders operated at non-league level, when they were in the wilderness of US soccer, and he's now going to lead his team out on the biggest stage in American domestic soccer, the MLS Cup final. I'm delighted for him, but mostly I'm delighted for Adrian Hanauer and and for the fans in Seattle. Over 40,000 of them turn up every week, Rog. They've watched Portland win it last year, who came into the league after them, and here they are now with an opportunity. Will it be at home? Will it be Toronto? That remains to be seen, but a fantastic achievement, and I'm delighted for them. Oh, Brian's career sounds like mine in reverse. But uh, you mentioned the fans in Seattle. The big takeaway for me from these semi-finals, those games in Montreal and Seattle last Tuesday night, 
combined 103,778 fans. That is a true footballing marvel. The Eastern final second leg between Montreal and Toronto, big in Canada, will be Wednesday night at 7pm Eastern time in Toronto. You can watch that on Fox Sports 1. Congratulations to another young American, 18-year-old Josh Perez, who on Monday night became the youngest American to ever play in Italy's Serie A after his debut for Fiorentina in a 4-2 loss to Inter Milan. The young Californian became just the sixth American to play in Serie A, which still faintly smells of Alexi Lalas's cologne. While we're talking about America, I want to ask you about Bruce Arena, our new U.S. men's national team coach. How has Jurgen Klinsmann's firing and replacement with Back to the Future's Bruce been perceived uh, from the perspective of the English media? Well, Jurgen Klinsmann being fired um, did get a few headlines. Um, it was during sort of an international break where the, the main story for England is, of course, Gareth Southgate. Will he or will he not get the job? It appears that he will be announced at some point this week. So, You mean Jurgen Klinsmann isn't going to be the next England manager after all? We're all tricked! <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't appear so. But every job that comes up, whether it's the national team or whether it's a, a big Premier League job, Jurgen Klinsmann's name seems to get mentioned. So maybe at some point we will see him in the Premier League. Thanksgiving, I spent a lot of time just thinking, big picture, the extent to which we don't have a big vision for the future over here. I mean, for every facet of the programme right now, national team-wise, the men's team, youth development for the men's team, the women's team, Let's just say that felt so much better 12 months ago mood-wise than it does right now, not just at the senior level, but the youth levels. The under-20 team was topped by South Korea last night in the under-20 World Cup. All of that's before us for both the men's and the women's team, the extent to which African-Americans and Latinos are scouted, recruited, incorporated, the extent to which the brand is marketed nationally. I mean, I'm trying to work out right now who is responsible for that big vision for going to bed worrying about all of it, for framing it, for engaging all of us in that strategy. Because it's sorely lacking right now, and it just can't be. It simply can't be at this incredibly transitional time. A big vision. To me, it's more important than a big, glamorous, quick-fixing European name for US soccer down the road. I'm surer and surer of that. It's time that the organization stops running like an old-school non-profit and really steps up strategy-wise. Before we go down the wormhole of darkness, Arlo, I want you to cheer us up. Because every week, we put one item in the Men in Blazers Amazon Emporium. This week, I've asked you to step in, select the best yeah. book or two that you've read this year. Bless us with its presence. What is it, Arlo? Well, you are partly, in fact, wholly responsible for, for this, uh, Rog. Let me explain it. We have a mutual acquaintance, probably more of a friend to you, an acquaintance to me called Rich Cohen, who you put me in touch with a couple of years ago um, because of our mutual love for the Chicago Bears. And you suggested his book, Monsters, the 1985 Chicago Bears and the Wild Heart of Football. And I loved it. So he then came out with another book this year. And I've been pretty light on the reading this year. So I'm going to pick that up. It's a New Year's resolution. Read more books next year. But he came out with a book earlier this year called The Sun, the Moon and the Rolling Stones. Um, and it was fantastic. I read it on a sun lounger during the summer. Now, he's a self-confessed Bears fan, obviously, loves the, the Chicago Cubs. But the main love of his life are the Rolling Stones. And he wrote for Rolling Stone magazine. And in the 90s, he got the dream assignment to go and follow the Stones on tour. And he got to know the guys gradually and they led him into their world. Uh, so he's spending time with Mick and he's spending time um, with Keith, Keith. Uh, and he said that one day he was sitting around down with Keith Richards. 
And he said, uh, Keith asked him, when were you born then? And I think Rich said a name, you know, a, a year in the in the mid 60s. And he said, wow, man, all you've known then is the sun, the moon and the Rolling Stones. And that is the, the title of his book. It's just fantastic. If you're into your music history, your rock bands, the greatest rock band that have ever walked the earth. This is the story of them with Rich's um, undeniable enthusiasm and rock and roll sort of writing style. So this get me thoroughly entertained, read it in two sittings. So it's The Sun, The Moon and The Rolling Stones by Rich Cohen. Oh, you're a beautiful man. I think you've also inadvertently tipped us off just to whom is going to be the Arlo White official biographer coming forward. <laughs> Since Churchill's autobiography, I don't think one has been so eagerly anticipated. Uh, before we let you go, what games are you going to be bettering our life our world our weekend with our like it's a strange weekend ahead because inarguably the big game is manchester city against chelsea but it's the 12:30 so the 7:30 eastern kickoff uh, on saturday and i always do the 12:30 eastern game because it's on the main nbc network so steve bauer is going to have man city against chelsea for you and i'll be at um the london stadium for west ham united against arsenal my first visit there i'm looking forward to checking out the atmosphere uh, and just seeing what it feels like as a football stadium because west ham have had their issues settling into their new surroundings but it's a big game for arsenal as well isn't it west ham just hovering above the bottom three arsenal trying to put together a title charge and then i'm at the uh, the old the old lady goodison park on sunday for everton against manchester united Will Jose Mourinho be on the sideline? We'll have to wait and see what the FA say this week. But again, Everton need to respond after that uh, debacle down on the south coast. But I always absolutely, I'm not saying it because it's you, Rog, but it's my favourite gantry in the whole of the Premier League. We have a load of season ticket holders just behind us. Always get us a coffee, always have a chat with us about, about the world and about Everton Football Club. So it's always a great place to go. And I expect a fantastic atmosphere on Sunday. So I can't wait for that. Oh, I'm dreading that game, but I am going to be tuning in, if only to hear you say the word charcuterie oh, I can't wait to hear Steve Bauer as well what a talented bloke he is America really only knows him as Rebecca Lowe's stunt double although you're a beautiful man I join thousands of Americans in raising a Guinness to you for all that you've done for us over the course of this year with Lee uh, and Graham your three men and a baby in a booth we are grateful to you for the joy you bring to our life week to week to week and we wish you and all whites godspeed over the holiday period very nice of you rog can't wait for davo to return next weekend but this was uh, this was fun i'll speak to you soon charcuterie charcuterie oh talking about charcuterie the men in blazers show it's back 5 30 p.m monday december the 5th after that ever-glamorous Middlesbrough. <laughs> oh, Hull City matchup. Davo will be back. We'll be joined by a special unwitting guest. Oh, I feel terrible for him already. New York Giants wide receiver, Victor Cruz. True lover of the game. Until Monday at 5.30 anyway. Until then, courage. And most importantly, Forza Chapé Quince. <laughs>